One night or day then, as he sat at his table, head on hands, he saw himself rise and go. First rise and stand clinging to the table, then sit again. Then rise again and stand clinging to the table again. Then go. Start to go. On unseen feet, start to go. The words of Samuel Beckett stirring still. It was his last published prose work. It's stored here in the University of Reading in a vault. So this is the main archive store. This year I'm the Beckett Creative Fellow at the University. I've been given rare access to the archive to read the original Stirring Still manuscripts to try to gain an insight into Beckett's later work. So the Beckett collection is just around the corner here. That's Guy Baxter. He's Head of Archive Services here in Reading. So roughly how many shelves do we have here? So there are about 20, 25 uh, shelves of boxes here, um, of Beckett material. And it's about 600 boxes, is that right? Yeah, it's about 500 boxes, something like that. This is the world's largest collection of resources relating to the Nobel Prize-winning author Samuel Beckett, and it's been called Britain's best-kept art secret, and I'm starting to see why. I suppose about half of that is really manuscripts of Beckett's work, and then there's a proportion of material about Beckett in performance, like programmes from theatre productions and those kinds of things, cuttings as correspondence. So it's not the largest collection here, but obviously it's one of the most important. Beckett gave this collection to Reading almost 50 years ago via his friend and official biographer, James Nolson. He was a generous man. He, was, he, he didn't want to make money from his manuscripts. He was giving them away. And we're very lucky that he gave them to the university because it meant they could be kept somewhere where, where people can still get access to them um, rather than just disappearing off into private collections. Even over here where I'm standing, I'm looking at Crap's Last yeah, Tape, so Stage Files, uh, Happy Days, more Crap's Last Tape. There's television plays. Well, I can see here on the, on the top shelf... Uh, 77 to 84 boxes of what looked to be personal correspondence between Beckett and um, Pamela Mitchell and Ruby Cohn and Jocelyn Herbert, who were women that he worked with but also had personal relationships with. So presumably they hide some interesting secrets and insights. Yeah, some of, some of the letters have been published, but yeah, there's more to find, I'm sure, and more gems to unearth within that. So I, I know everything I see here isn't, isn't all that you have and, and a big recent acquisition was the original Murphy manuscript. Do you think it would be possible to have a little look at that? Uh, yes, we'll go to where the Murphy manuscript's kept, a bit more security. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Beckett's first published novel, Murphy, is now 80 years old. It follows a dissatisfied man living in London who rejects responsibility. It looks like a filing cabinet. I was expecting golden doors. <laughs> The keeper of the manuscript to, uh, to come out and mourn me away. You're not going to get electrocuted or anything. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to see something that's of such huge cultural value really stored in this very simple way. The staples had rusted, the books were starting to come apart, and therefore they weren't, they weren't particularly damaged. So we just had the staples replaced with cotton. And we had these, just these very simple covers put on just to give them a little bit of extra protection for the cover where it's got a bit worn, mm-hmm. a little bit of repair. Well, it looks, it looks like, a, like the kind of copybook I would have had in school as a child. It's, you know, a little A5 lined, cheap cardboard cover. There's nothing fancy about the books at all. Um, there are six of them and they're all pretty, pretty similar. But as you see from the first pages, you can see it's called Sasha Murphy at that stage. 
You see the date when mm-hmm. he's writing in 35. And almost every line that he wrote has been scored out. All crossed out. And in fact, crossed out multiple times. He was clearly really crossing it out. Yeah, um, I mean, he, everything is scribbled and lined through and then X'd over as well. Yeah, page 17 and then some doodles. Then ah, we get pages then, of... Yeah, I mean, this looks like a like a portrait of himself with the, kind of the famous spiky hair, doesn't it? Yeah, and this is, and this is very clearly Charlie Chaplin. Mm-hmm. And you have ones where it's very clearly... Uh, James Joyce the crossings out he he didn't like his opening I think it's fair to I say think, I think so, that's obvious yeah so. and also that you can see you can see those moments where he clearly stopped and didn't know where to go next I think that's why he doodled was to, to sort of stay in the moment and not you know, go for a walk and then he'd, he'd forget where he was and, but yeah, they are amazing things it is a more youthful slightly more expansive script than we get used to with this slightly, this small, almost spidery kind of writing, as you'd expect the first novel yeah. to be. It's, well, of um, course, as well, he hadn't really reached his great moment of revelation mm. about how his work would progress when he wrote Murphy. You know, he was still, still under the influence of Joyce in a lot of ways and hadn't begun that process of really peeling everything down to the bones. Mm. So, uh, presumably, were any uh, catastrophes to happen, this would be pretty irreplaceable. So what would you insure it for? <laughs> um, I can't give you the exact figure, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty substantial uh, amount of money. I mean, we, we were in the business of not losing any of our things, but yes, this would certainly have the highest value. Let's just say you'd be able to probably buy a house in central London. <laughs> <laughs> I'll move away from the notebooks. <laughs> well, now, having seen the Precious Murphy manuscript... The, the manuscript I'm actually going to ask to see is is the original of Stirring Still. Sure, well, let's get that. <laughs> Having caught a rare glimpse of the work of the young writer Beckett in Murphy, I am also intrigued by the much older writer, the one his friend and biographer James Knowlton remembers still as a vibrant and charismatic man. It was wonderful to see him still on form in his 60s. Still very vigorous, still full of life and creativity and directing his own plays. There was this tall, athletic figure leaning on Billy Whitelaw's mantelpiece. And my wife had by that stage not met him. And I watched her as we went into the room and she literally, I mean, it was almost as if her hair was standing on end. She literally went, you know, frozen kind of for a few moments because he had got a certain degree of magnetism, of personal magnetism that one was always conscious of and still so handsome. So we've now moved uh, from the stack into one of the reading rooms. I'm here with Stephen Matthews, director of the Samuel Beckett Research Centre, and Mark Nixon, co-director of the Beckett International Foundation. And, uh, and we have before us the original manuscripts of Stirring Still, and uh, here I see is another notebook, this time slightly different, ring-bound. And, uh, it's a, it looks like a maths notebook. Mark, what can you tell me about this? Well, this notebook contains some of the earliest drafts um, towards Stirring Still. And what's quite interesting to note here is is that Beckett doesn't really have a clear idea 
what he's actually trying to do. Also incredibly interesting is the fact that Beckett can't decide at the beginning whether this is a text that he was going to write in English or in French. And so we have both languages on the very, very first page. But this is the origin, as it were, of the writing process of Stirring Still. So if I turn to you, Stephen, could you tell me when this process started? Well, the interesting thing about Beckett as a writer is that he dated everything. So as you can see, he's saying that he started writing in Paris in August 1984, and we know that this is a text that he actually worked through to February uh, 1985. It all came into a bit of a focus for him when uh, Barney Rossett, who he's published his work in America, found himself in dire financial circumstances, and so Beckett thought about uh, creating a work specifically for Barney. We know Stirring Still was the last published prose work. Could you tell us really what it's about? Like a lot of Beckett's late work, it's set around a very simple scene. It's a man sitting at a table with his head in his hands uh, under a skylight and thinking through parts of his life, phases of his life. Um, And we know that some parts of that uh, reflection back to the past relate to Beckett's own experience, particularly in the first part of Stirring Still. We see mentioned several times of Dali, Uh, And we know that Beckett knew Adali at the time that he, Beckett, was working in Normandy at Saint-Lô in an Irish Red Cross hospital just after the Second World War. He obviously became very close with Arthur Dali, um, amongst many others. The loss of Dali for Beckett clearly symbolised, if you like, the many... Uh, losses that we all suffer through our lives and the way that our time, if you like, continues, but their time has ceased, but we carry them with us in some sort of way. A clock afar struck the hours and half-hours, the same as when, among others, Darley once died and left him. Strokes now clear as if carried by a wind now faint on the still air. Cries afar, now faint, now clear. Head on hands, half hoping when the hour struck that the half hour would not, and half fearing that it would not. Similarly, when the half hour struck. Similarly, when the cries a moment ceased. Or merely wondering, or merely waiting, waiting to hear. Mark, he started work. 83, 84, but the the piece itself wasn't completed or wasn't published until 89. Why did it take so long? Even though in the published version it only covers a few pages, um, there are more manuscripts for this particular text than there are for any other um, of Beckett's works. He, he literally struggles to find the right way of writing it. Also, there's, there's something else about this. It, the stirring still takes its name from a line in an earlier work, Company, And Beckett is not a writer that I particularly associate with drawing a lot of lines between his works, like the way, for instance, Portrait connects very strongly to Ulysses. Beckett doesn't seem to do that quite so often or quite so obviously in the way that other writers do. Is it intentional that he wants to draw our attention back to company? I think within the 80s, in all of his texts, and it doesn't matter whether they're prose, whether it's poetry, whether it's drama, they do seem to be circling around similar themes, uh, similar topics. Stirring Still, for example, is, is, is playing with the idea of a self and a second self and the non-self. It's also, um, as, as with Company or uh, Worstwood Ho, 
um, it's it's very much also thinking about the imagination, um, i.e. The, the figure sitting there head in hands essentially is, is, is enacting imagination. Um, he's imagining himself rise and go um, and see, sees himself in, in, in fields and on the back roads and, and so forth. But essentially it's yet an, a, another um, uh, way of Beckett to try and inscribe the actual act of imagining something within the text. Seen always from behind whithersoever he went, same hat and coat as of old when he walked the roads, the back roads, now as one in a strange place seeking the way out, in the dark, in a strange place blindly in the dark of night or day, seeking the way out, our way out, to the roads, the back roads. When we were in the uh, stacks earlier, we looked at Murphy and we were discussing Beckett's youthful handwriting. And it seems to me that in this final manuscript again, or this l late work again, it, the writing becomes legible again in a way that it, in the in the sort of middle period, it becomes very illegible. Generally speaking, Beckett's handwriting from from about the seventies onwards gets gets clearer. Um, I think it's partly got to do with the fact that he himself had cataract operations, and he often says in letters, for example, um, "I hope you can read this. I can't." Um, there is a sort of a sense here in which, yes, the handwriting is a lot clearer. Um, I suppose to do that thing that one should never do with uh, Beckett is to psychologise a bit. It seems as though the youthful writing is quite legible, then it, oh, it becomes very enclosed in the midst of the journey, but towards the end he's, he sort of allows the reader in again in a different way. Yes, that, I think that, that's another, another good way of looking at it and reading it, yes. Again, as always, there are a lot of crossings out and, uh, and ink splotches here that the sentimental might interpret as teardrops. <laughs> Could also be a drop of whiskey. <laughs> I hope for his sake it was whiskey. <laughs> Till so many strokes and cries since he was last seen that perhaps he would not be seen again. Then so many cries since the strokes were last heard that perhaps they would not be heard again. Then such silence since the cries were last heard that perhaps even they would not be heard again. Perhaps thus the end. There are many routes to posterity. One is crashing and burning before your time, letting tragedy guarantee your place in history. Another route as is clear from the archive and stirring still, is Beckett's, as a great writer, a great artist, who has lived into old age. Beckett was 83 when he completed stirring still and had endured all the unromantic losses of family and friends, health and liberty, which accompany old age. Now, with a clear eye, he faces the rapidly approaching end of his own long, productive life, and there is a poignancy in that which I find almost unbearable. In line with the rest of his work, stirring still is meticulous and without any excess emotion. The language is measured, almost mathematical, as it reflexively repeats and revises itself. One night as he sat at his table, head on hands, he saw himself rise and go. One night or day. Those opening lines develop in the second paragraph. One night or day then, 
As he sat at his table, head on hands, he saw himself rise and go. First rise and stand clinging to the table, then sit again. Then rise again and stand clinging to the table again. Then go. Start to go. On unseen feet, start to go. Nothing of any great moment is described. A man imagines himself getting up from a table and then gets up from a table. But with Beckett's pitch-perfect ear, he arranges and rearranges those few nondescript words almost into music, and over the course of the work into something beautiful and devastating. So by its close, it is clearly a journey into absence which has begun. So slow that only change of place to show he went, as when he disappeared, only to reappear later at another place, then disappeared again, only to reappear again later at another place again. So again and again, disappeared again, only to reappear again at another place again. Given Beckett understood Stirring Still would be his final prose work, its simplicity is remarkable. Who would have complained if, to mark the occasion, he'd indulged in a few linguistic fireworks? Instead, this final restraint and economy seem very much in keeping with the renowned modesty of the man himself. At the same time, Stirring Still also encapsulates many of the great preoccupations of Beckett's writing. There's the former tramp from the backroads wrestling with the disobedience of time and space, even with the question of his own reality. There's the restless, unnamed voice ricocheting off the inside of its own head, trying to prove and disprove its sanity. There's the implication of an unspecified violence at work, and, as always, the uneasy expression of some undetermined guilt. There had been a time he would sometimes lift his head enough to see his hands. What of them must be seen? One laid on the table, the other on the one. At rest, after all they did. Lift his past head a moment to see his past hands, then lay it back on them to rest it too. After all, it did. Of course, this being Beckett's final word on the approach of death, it comes stripped of all comfort. He forgoes the usual consolations of redemption and resurrection. He refuses himself the satisfaction of looking back on his life's work and the hugely influential legacy he'll leave behind. Even the atheist's palliative of peace in oblivion is resisted. After all, death may just mean reappearing again, there or elsewhere, into infinity. Disappear and reappear at another place. Disappear again and reappear again at another place again. Or at the same. And yet, despite the apparent bleakness of this, stirring still isn't a work of despair. On the contrary, it's profoundly moving to witness an artist make his final reckoning with the end and realise that, despite all the pain, confusion and regret of life, he still finds himself sorry to go. But soon, weary of vainly delving in those remains, he moved on through the long hoar grass, Resigned to not knowing where he was, or how he got there, or where he was going, or how to get back to whence he knew not how he came. Because what he wrote was true. Because there was never a false note, a false statement. 
Lisa Duan has been performing Beckett's work for over a decade and she has come to understand how to inhabit his words. There were themes that he was constantly returning to. Um, he was always trying to get to the it of it all. And he would, you know, uh, enter stage right, enter stage left at the, uh, towards the it of it all. And he leaves me space to meet it, which so few writers do. Uh, my name is Olwen Fuere. I'm a performer, a theatre maker. I've done a number of the plays. I've done Not I, I've done Come and Go, I've done Play, I've done Catastrophe, um, Endgame. But the prose works, I think, do offer a certain freedom in that, you know, you don't have the usual stage directions and they speak to you in their individual ways. When I first read Beckett, he was the first writer who uh, who I rela- who actually related to and who I sort of felt I understood and understood my world. Can I ask you about the act of performance? What do you feel your role is? Removing one's person, actually, in many ways. Getting things out of the way, getting out of the way of it. I will always feel that that's my role as a performer is to be a conduit. I think as a conduit, you are allowing the uh, reader or the viewer to receive it and understand it for themselves. You're not telling them what it is. Well, it's the kind of theatre I'm, I'm never all that interested in is when it's, it's, it's telling you what, it, what it's all about. And I say, well, why am I coming to see it unless I get a chance to, <laughs> to find out for myself what it's about? Beckett just demands that the actor rips their flesh open. And it's, it's, it's a, a daunting prospect. And if you don't do it, you'll be hung out to dry. If you don't uh, give it everything you have, and it has to be... It uh, can't be a manufactured emotion. It has to be the real stuff. He sniffs out phony and fake. and You can't give him a dose of the sads. <laughs> you have to go there. It, it, it has to be the real thing. And in order to do that, I can't get caught up in Samuel Beckett's biography. That's not going to help anyone. How do I, um, as this instrument... This five foot two, 40 year old woman, how do I meet that text? How do I make that resonate? And I have my own matching wounds. And um, they, they, they have di- different access points, but they, they ache just as well. And I have to expose those to Beckett's work and let his work play off me. That's a meeting of minds, a meeting of wounds. It's a wonderful opportunity with this work to give your wounds work. So you have to marry these potent images and these words with um, something extremely raw yourself. So for that phrase or at that particular part of the text, you give it something very pure and then you move on. And you don't become indulgent. Um, And it's a tightrope and it's a discipline. And it's a privilege. No other writer I know has ever asked or offered so much. I had no idea who I was until Beckett introduced me to myself. I don't know if it's to do with emotion, but it's certainly to do with uh, recognition. So I think that's what attracts us to other people's work. Uh, 
as performers, it's usually, ah, oh yes, I see this. This is actually describing something that I have a sense of or I want to find out more about. So it's a very um, intimate connection. But I don't know how much it's based on emotion, possibly to a certain extent, more on your relationship to the world, uh, to art, uh, to your imagination, to the future and the past. Such and much more such, the hubbub in his mind so-called, till nothing left from deep within but only ever fainter O to end. No matter how, no matter where, time and grief and self so-called, O all to end. Beckett published Stirring Still in 1989 and died later that year. I mean, death was always the big at the core of everything. But he was always conscious of death there, lurking, waiting for, for us at any time. James Nolson looks back at the man he knew. So from a young man, he always had these premonitions of death. I mean, he had a lot of physical symptoms that made him panic. You know, panicking heart, psychological problems, probably partially caused through his father's death. He was very close with his father. And I remember the struggle that he had with Stirring Still, which I still think is a wonderful text. So at the time that Beckett was writing Stirring Still, did he understand, did he expect that this would be his final prose work? I think so. I mean, I only have one other memory very closely related to that. That I remember... I think it was in the same conversation at the PLM Hotel where we used to meet late on for coffee when he didn't want to go out to dinner, but quite often it would be a dinner and sometimes there. But I remember him saying, I managed to finish it for Barney Rossett. But, you know, it was not only a struggle, but I wasn't, you know, quite totally happy with it. And then I said, are you writing anything else at the moment? And I've never forgotten this. He then said, I have a phrase, a, a sentence in my mind, or one or two sentences, but I can't take it any further than this. Il se dit, plus rien à dire. They said to each other, there is nothing more to say. The readings tonight were by Stephen Brennan, with thanks to the Beckett Estate, thanks also to the University of Reading, our contributors, and the producer, Zoe Cummins.